Once upon a time, there were three friends. Juan. Hello. Karen. Hi. And me, Beck. We loved to sit in cafes, bouncing ideas off each other, collaborating on creative things and sharing the stuff we were into. We called ourselves, completely unpretentiously, the hive mind. But as so often happens, the demands of life started to encroach and it got harder and harder to meet up in person. What's a hive mind to do but find new ways to pick each other's brains? Welcome to the Hive Minded Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Hive Minded Podcast. You're here with Guan. Hello. And Karen. Hello. And me, Beck. Hi. Now, today is our 10th episode. Hooray! Woo! We made it to 10. And we're going to do something a little different, and we are each going to talk about one thing that we would take with us if we were on a desert island. And I'm going to go first. And the problem that I have with this kind of assignment is that I immediately start thinking about logistics, because I think if I just had, <laughs> if I just had a desert island, you know, like this CD or this album, what would I play it on? Would I have the thing to play it on? Or, you know, and if it was a movie, would I have the whole screen and everything? In which case, wouldn't I have other things as well? Why would I have? Anyway, this is what <laughs> went through my head as I was trying to think of what I would talk about. But then I got that out of the way and thought about Guan looking at me sternly and saying I was being ridiculous. And so That's exactly what it. I was going to say. I was very restrained. <laughs> it's like you're growing or something. Anyway... The desert island thing that I would take would be Björk's third solo album, Homogenic. Nice. Yeah. It came out 20 years ago. Isn't that crazy? There's so, so many things now that were from a formative time in my life that are now going, hey, it's its 20th anniversary. Do you feel old? I'm like, no, but thanks. Like Buffy. <laughs> like Buffy. I know. Björk is just magical. How would you describe Björk to someone who had never heard Björk before or heard a of magical Björk? pixie who is known it's in the pop best culture as wearing a swan dress to the Oscars. And that is not all that she is good for. I think she's been given a bad rap by people who don't have the patience to get into her, but people who are into her are really into her and sort of get it. So I didn't really know much about her in, when she was in the Sugar Cubes, her band, before she went solo. Mm -hmm. But um, remember hearing her first album debut at a friend's place when I was still in high school and just being blown away. And we would just sort of sit there listening to it and sort of deconstructing it as you kind of do when you're a take-yourself-too-seriously kind of high schooler who thinks they're mm -hmm. all about that. But it was <laughs> lots of fun and has lots of good memories associated with it. And then the second album was post which had a sort of more electronica sound, but was still still had remnants of the debut sound. And then in 1997, Homogenic came out, and it was like from the moment you picked it up, just something completely different from everything that she'd done before. So you look at the album artwork, and she just looks like this incredible alien. Like she's just... Mm. The first two albums, it was a very sort of naturalistic kind of photograph of her on the front or maybe not naturalistic but it just was obviously this is the chick singer and here she is on the front of the cover but this one it was like she was challenging you she was this cold 
supercilious character with all these layers in the one image. And it was a mm. really beautiful album artwork. It sort of folded out and had a beautiful book that went with it. But the sound of the actual music is just incredible. I was listening to it this afternoon and just thinking it could have been released today. Like it just yeah. sounds completely out of time. Timeless. Yep. Um, yeah. It's got all this electronica in it and these crazy beats and rhythms and textures in the sound. And then it's got these beautiful sweeping sounds from the Icelandic string octet that um, just the refrains that they play in some of the songs are just beautiful. Mm. But then over it all is her voice that is so many emotions and characters all sort of wrapped up in one. And she's this tiny, tiny little human, yet she makes these enormous sounds. It's it's just, just amazing. And she can be cute or fierce or angry or quiet, all just sort of from moment to moment. Yeah, I saw her live in Belfast, of all places, in 2008. And it was, if I talked about Annie DeFranco last week and said that was one of the best concerts I'd ever been to, this is probably the second best or on par because it was just the most enveloping experience of sound and color and, and again, like texture and just playfulness with all of these different elements. And I'll put in the show notes, my blog post that I wrote at the time, which just basically was like, Oh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Um, Cause I wanted to see her. She played in Sydney at the opera house and for some reason I couldn't make it and I was really upset. And then I was going to visit these friends in Ireland and she was playing there. And it just seemed like it seemed so perfect to be seeing her in this place where I didn't sort of fit either. You know, like it, it was just mm. it all just seemed just right. And I saw her exhibition at Vivid Sydney last year called Björk Digital, where she had all these installations based on her latest album, Vulnicura, which were just, again, all enveloping. The first one that you went into was basically this huge dark room with screens all around. I think the only gaps were where the doors were and speaker stacks all around the room. And wherever you stood in the room, you had a different experience of the music. So it would bring out different elements of the music. So if you stood in, in the dead centre, you'd get a very different experience of the sound than you would if you were standing, like you might not actually hear some of the elements in the music, where if you stood, you know, off to the left, you'd hear all these amazing string things or, yeah. And uh, boundary pushing is a bit of a cliched term, I suppose, but that's really what she does, like visually, um, orally, everything. And the lyrics in Homogenic are quite sort of, I don't know, they're not secondary, but they're just another layer. It's not sort of like this song is about this and um, here is a story, but it's just it's another element of all the different sounds. And if it was just the lyrics without the layer of strings and the layer of rhythm, it wouldn't make sense, but it all just sort of works together. And the thing about that album, the reason why I would – have it with me on a desert island and presumably something to play it on um, is that it just seems to reveal something 
different to me every time I listen to it. And I never get sick of it because it's such, as I read in the Pitchfork review of it, um, it's such a dense sound. There's just so much going on that you can just pick different things out all the time. Oh, I was just wondering what she's like in concert. How do you reproduce that kind of sound for a live audience? Yeah, well, she had... It was around the time of, well, I've totally forgotten the album, but the one that's got Earth Intruders on it, that's a really big um. sort of punchy sound. And she had like a brass ensemble dressed up in these amazing costumes that sort of trooped on after her. And she had someone, you know, playing with a piece of equipment that produces a lot of electronica sounds, which I'm not actually sure what it's called, but it was quite amazing. And yeah, so there was a lot of, people on computers and stuff so she had a crew sort of like a band at the back and then just her dressed in gold <laughs> in the front with making these incredible noise you know like yeah you you would think how do you how do you reproduce that sound but just somehow it sounded totally live even though obviously so much of it was samples and and things like and electronic like it wasn't you know people playing acoustic instruments or anything but it just it sounded really sort of raw and the energy in the room and and I remember Declare Independence was her last encore, which has this really sort of stomping, rousing chorus about raise your flag higher. And my friend, after we left, she said she enjoyed it, but she said, I'm really disturbed that she'd choose to sing something like that in somewhere like Belfast, where flags are so problematic. And I thought, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. She really did whip people up into this kind of stomping frenzy that hadn't even occurred to me that it could be dangerous but she's just this like truly a force of nature even though it just sounds kind of cheesy and so much of her music is about her relationship with her homeland Iceland and the landscape and and all of that sort of stuff so the natural world is really a big part of who she is as well so she really is a force of nature. I just remember her I think it was a documentary around the time of homogenic and her there's a quote about her saying that at the time a lot of electronic music like it was still a relatively new new thing Mm. especially in pop music and people thought of it as quite samey or quite cold and mechanical and Björk was one of the first people to in this quote she says well no it's not it's not cold and mechanical it's how you use it it's just an instrument like any other instrument Mm. is an instrument which was remarkable to say at the time but now, if you look back actually at the influence and we have people like the XX or churches who mm. happily use electronica married to, you know, all kinds of different moods and voices. Mm. And a lot of that actually is the influence of Hermogenic um, and mm. yeah, the way that she used this newish instrument to her own ends of emotional catharsis often on Hermogenic. But yeah, yeah all kinds of different well, things. Well, one of the last tracks on it is called Pluto and it is just so like some of the tracks are really soft and really reflective this one is just bombast and it's aggression and it's anger and it's like and at the time I I was stage managing a production of Titus Andronicus at uni and if you know anything about that um, Shakespeare play it is extremely bloody it's very violent and really dark and we had a lot of fake blood <laughs> and um, the set was basically sand from like the, the entire stage was covered in sand. So I had to rake the sand back before each performance and I'd play music in the theater while I was doing that. And I had this on and one of the cast came out and she said, um, do you think you could 
maybe change the music. Everyone's getting a bit freaked out. Because <laughs> I was just like, I was so um, affected by this play and that track just plugged directly into that emotion. And I was just like, oh, at the end of this, you know, week long run of people dying and having their tongues cut out and all this sort of stuff and just going, uh, how am I coping with this? And obviously my way of coping with it was very different from the way the cast was coping with it. And they couldn't <laughs> quite prepare to go on stage with me screaming Björk in the theatre. So, yes, she's good for all of life's emotions. <laughs> and she's also incredibly thoughtful about what she does as well. Mm. So and I think that gets, I don't know, misrepresented or something because probably partly sexism, probably partly that it's easier to yeah cover the slightly crazy things like the swan dress or... <laughs> Mm. whatever but there's actually um so there's an excellent podcast called song exploder where Mm. artists talk uh recording artists talk about the songs that they've made as the song kind of plays and um the one from björk on one of the songs on vulnicula is actually really insightful about her process Mm. and the way that she layers things for a particular emotional effect to tie in with lyrics um at the time so i'll find that link and put it on the show notes yep So if you want to check out our show notes, which will have anything that we're referencing here, just go to hivemindednet and you can check those out as well as any of our previous episodes. So next, if the hive mind was stranded on a desert island, we'd have (laughs) Björk's homogenic and Karen would bring... Um, Well, assuming that we'd also have a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) That goes without saying. Yeah, good, good, good. I just thought, it, yep. even though it goes without saying, it's worth saying. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would bring The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley. Mm. So, not Neil Gaiman. Hey! <laughs> yeah. Neil's so, going to be um, so sad. Oh. <laughs> She's memorised all his work already, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, have you guys read anything by Robin McKinley? No. I've just started The Hero and the Crown. That's her, isn't it? Ah, yes, yes, yes. Because it was a toss-up between The Hero and the Crown and The Blue Sword. I just, Um, one of the reasons I started um, Hero and the Crown was a, someone I follow on Twitter, a writer, said, what's your best, what's your favourite YA novel? And of course, the reply thread was very long and lots of people yelling about, ah, this is too hard. But (laughs) like Robin McKinley, both Hero and the Crown and the Blue Sword came up a lot in the replies. uh, And that's one of the reasons Mm. I started it. But I want to hear why you like it. (laughs) So Robin McKinley is one of my all-time favourite authors. And just for reference sakes, the others are Gaia Roquet, C.S. Lewis, the dynamic duo Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey (laughs) together, not separately, Mm. and of course Neil Gaiman. And to make it on this prestigious list, I need to have read and loved most of their bibliography. And Robin McKinley, I have read and loved most of her bibliography. I haven't actually read it all because a lot of her recent work, yeah, I haven't been able to keep up. But yeah, I've loved so much of her stuff. Do you you see, go on, how Karen managed to sneak in a top five, even though... (laughs) We explicitly (laughs) said no top fives. Anyway, continue. Like the richness of the thing you're trying to yeah, anyway um okay i will continue <laughs> i discovered robin mckinley when i was a teenager somebody recommended beauty to me um it's her retelling of beauty and the beast and she kind mm. of regards beauty and the beast as being like 
her source story. And so if you read the rest of her oeuvre, you see it popping up again and again. So she retold it in Beauty, and then she retold it in Rose Daughter with a different ending. And then she also has this absolutely wonderful, you know, puts Twilight to shame vampire novel called <laughs> Sunshine, which is more urban fantasy than anything that she's ever written, I think. In a way, Beauty was a close contender for my Desert Island book, but I love the the blue sword more and I'm getting to blue sword sorry it's sort of a roundabout <laughs> way so the hero in the crown which Gwen mentioned before is actually a prequel to the blue sword but it was published two years after uh it came out in 1984 blue sword came out in 1982 hero in the crown won the Newbury medal uh the blue sword won a Newbury honor award which I kind of like the runners up for the Newbury medal and both books are set in the fantasy land of Damar and they are the only full-length novels that McKinley has ever written that are set in this world. But she's actually written a few short stories in a picture book which are set in the, that world too, which is quite interesting. Because a lot of people are like, oh, you need to write more Damar. And she's like, well, I'd like to, but the Story Council, you know, it's up to them. And it's kind of, in a way, a bit countercultural because normally fantasy authors, uh, you know, they'll expand it out to a series, You right? get your property yeah. and you... Yeah, milk it for all it's worth. Yeah, Not that I'm McKinley... cynical or anything. <laughs> McKinley hasn't <laughs> done that. So you don't need to have read The Hero and the Crown to enjoy The Blue Sword. They sort of complement each other. They don't really flow on from each other. Um, they do share a common character in Aaron the Dragon Killer. Um, Aaron is this totally awesome princess who teaches herself to fight dragons and in spite of her father goes off to fight the scariest dragon of them all. And it's a really, really awesome book and that's why it was kind of the runner-up. But The Blue Sword, okay, it's one of the first books by McKinley I ever read and loved from the first reading and even now it's one of my comfort reads. I return to it every mm. couple of years, like it's an old friend. So it's set hundreds of years after the events of The Hero and the Crown. It focuses on this young woman named Angarad Crew, or they call her Harry for short. That's a bit, a bit disconcerting because it's, you know, <laughs> Harry's a guy's name, but anyway. Um, so at the beginning of the novel, she's orphaned. She comes from the homeland, which is a bit like the Empire. Um, her brother, however, is serving in the military at the remote outpost of Ishtan, and it's on the border of the royal province of Daria. So Damar has, in a way, been colonised by Homeland. She goes far away to live in this colony, and because she can't live with her brother in the barracks, she goes to stay with the Homeland's district commissioner and his wife, who are these elderly couple. They don't have any children of their own. So Harry's life is very comfortable. She's well provided for. There are servants to cater for her every need. Um, the district commissioner and his wife are lovely. They have great affection for her because um, they never had any children and so they kind of in a way look at, upon her as a daughter and it's very English in the way it's written there's lots of tea <laughs> in the things and it's almost like an Austen novel but nevertheless Harry is quite dissatisfied and she longs for something more and while she's there the district commissioner receives a visit from Corlath who's king of the native hill folk and the native hill folk still regard the land as being theirs even though they've essentially been conquered by the homeland. King Corlath warns of an impending invasion from the north where the demonic tribes have united under the leadership of a powerful and evil wizard. And Corlath is trying to enlist the homeland military to fight with them, but he's unsuccessful. His warnings aren't taken seriously. Now, Harry runs into Corlath just as Corlath is storming out. And in that brief and momentary meeting, it provokes some sort of powerful reaction between the two of them, which Harry doesn't quite understand. And then later that night, Corlath returns and kidnaps Harry, something he's actually a bit ashamed of doing because it... You know, it's, it's problematic on all sorts of levels. But 
because he's the king, there's this magic that runs through his bloodline called Kelar, I think, and it it kind of compels him to do it. So he feels like he has to, because in some way she's important to the cause, but he doesn't quite know how. And so she wakes up and, and she's like being bundled on this horse, kind of bumping along and going, oh my goodness, what's happening? And ends up traveling with Korlath and his court and entering the kingdom of, of Damar. And then her importance in the war and the future of Damar becomes clear over the course of the novel. Yeah, so that's kind of the <laughs> taster. <laughs> Six things I love about this book, the mm. characters, um, and not just Harry. I identify quite strongly with Harry because she's restless and intelligent and she wants so much more from her life than she has. But also Corlath, who's this, this wonderful king, is an amazing warrior, brilliant leader, a charming human being, but also as infuriating as hell, but also tender and kind. And if you ask me like which fictional character I have a crush on, it's actually Corlath. <laughs> Second thing, it's very much a girl about a girl being a hero in the sense that she goes and she does what is necessary and what is right, even though the odds are heavily against her and what she's doing scares her silly. And mm -hmm. McKinley has said in other places that she very much wanted to write about girls who do things, who go out and have adventures as amazing as boys do. Mm. Thirdly, it has this whole, you know, student master training trope, which I'm a total sucker for, and I <laughs> love seeing Harry go from this very genteel and delicate flower of a girl to this total badass with a sword on horseback. And fourthly, the whole imperial slash colonial aspect, McKinley, she was heavily influenced by Rudyard Kipling. I don't even know if mm -hmm. I'm saying that properly. I've never actually <laughs> read any Rudyard Kipling. And the lands of Damar and Homeland sort of reflect some of that sensibility because Homeland could easily be England and Damar could almost be India or Morocco mm. or Afghanistan or something. And even though like it's a novel in a sense about a young woman's journey to self-actualization, it's also about post-colonialism and you know trying to bridge the gap between the colonized and the colonizer and all the complicated politics all about that and it is a bit problematic I was reading a blog post today about it which is saying that McKinley in a way goes for the whole um, empire as savior thing in a sense but it's still it's still really enjoyable <laughs> mm. and and then following on from that I love that it's not medieval fantasy because aspects of Hero in the Crown they draw from the medieval period you know it's about dragons and knights and kings and princes and princesses and so on and so forth but Damar several hundred years down the track is, is different and was actually changed by the events of the Hero in the Crown it's sort of more wilder and it's it's more kind of affected by the fact that a lot of the land is desert a lot of the action takes place in the wilderness and the people are traveling in, in very elaborate tents and, and moving from place to place on horseback and I kind of wondered in a way, just thinking about it, whether she subtly influenced George R. R. Martin, because there are bits mm. that reminded me of the Dothraki in Game of Thrones, mm. but I can't find any possible link. Final thing, sixth thing, it's a love story, but it's the sort of thing where the romance happens in the background, much like Uprooted by Naomi Novak, which we've already talked about on the podcast. Mm. It's very well handled, though, because, you know, the two characters... They're very a bit awkward and strange around each other, especially you know, given that Corlath kidnaps Harry. But he's like, it's not for you know because I want to sleep with you. It's because my magic told me to. You know, it's that, that's the weirdness. And sure, then, it is. Yeah, 
and then they progress to being, you know, in a way infuriated and even exasperated by each other, and then there's this growing mm. attraction, and then, of course, it's a happy ending despite all obstacles, which I hope I have not ruined for you. And <laughs> I just love the relationship between the two of them because it makes you want to read more about what happens to them, even you mm. know, even though you know the ending is happy in a way. But unfortunately, there is no more, so you never get to know mm. anymore. <laughs> that's very sad anyway so that's six things i loved about the blue sword and i highly recommend that you read it it is it is such a wonderful very fun book and she writes the characters so well and yeah anyway so for someone like me who would now like to read it should i read the blue sword first or the hero and the crown what doesn't matter think it really matters okay. yeah because i think reading one actually makes you want to go and read the other quite mm. frankly which mm-hmm. sounds a bit funny, but it, it seriously does. And the character of Aaron, in a way, is like the the linchpin, the key to all that. So once yep. you see Aaron pop up in the Blue Sword, then it makes you want to go read about her and Here on the Crown. And even when you've read Here on the Crown, you kind of, in a way, want to learn more about Aaron or follow her. Yep. And, you know, she pops up in, in the Blue Sword again. So it's sort of this weird circular thing where one book makes you want to read the other book and so on and so forth. <laughs> Whereas the short stories, ah, oh, they have one other character, Luth, and he's a he's he's a kind of almost a black books kind of grumpy character mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways, yeah, and he pops up a little bit in the short stories as well, um, mm-hmm. but I think yeah, if because I think Carrie and Aaron for me are the two most attractive characters. I think that I tend to gravitate more towards the books and the short stories. So you started here in the Crown, Guan, is that yeah, right? Yeah, like literally just started. Um you know, not even through the first chapter, I think. Just picked it up oh. a couple of days ago. So, cool. yeah, I'm looking forward to it even more now. And I'm sold too. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> My wish list keeps getting longer after every episode we do. I'm just like, ah, oh, add that, add that. When are we going to read these things? Too many seems not enough time. That's why we have this podcast. Exactly. Yes. Cool. Thank you, Karen. Now, go on. So I'm going to cheat just a little bit. Um, but like Karen, I thought about the things I could talk about. Um, so I could talk about Bob Dylan, who's my favorite and I'll listen to for the rest of my life or books I really love and will read over and over again, like Little Big by John Crowley, which is the most beautiful, beautifully written book I think I've ever read or the Lyman Chronicles, which is just profoundly good on so many levels. I think I've talked about that a little bit before Dorothy Dunnett or, you know, the many, many films I love. But I was thinking about, like Beck, what that one thing was that I wanted, would want to have on a desert island. And then it came to me that my desert island thing isn't a thing, but is making something. and Just creating something that appears in the world that wasn't there before. Making something mm. from creativity and graft. So my desert island thing is following your curiosity and to watch to see how those threads of curiosity lead you out of the maze. My desert island thing is to realize that the thing you've always wanted to read or hear or play or see hasn't been made yet, and so you're going to make it, damn it. And my desert island thing is putting in the time to put the words on the screen or the art on the page or the edits on the podcast and to learn your tools and learn them well And my desert island thing is having the compassion for yourself that lets you see the specters of fear and shame up ahead and to do it anyway and just put something out there anyway because the worst thing that can happen is 
just in your head. And my desert island thing is to know that you'll fail at all of this and to do it anyway <laughs> because failure is success and you have to fail and fail a lot before you get anywhere. And that's okay because the alternative to that is way worse. And mm. the alternative to that is a lot like being stuck on a desert island and <laughs> never getting to make anything from yourself and to never bring forth these things of creativity and never commune with the muse. Um, so I'm not really am not trying to be clever or meta or whatever, but <laughs> I was just thinking of that feeling that you get from the best art, the best movies or the best books, the best mm. acts of creativity. Yeah. Um, whenever I get that feeling, part of me is just thinking, how can I use that? How can I do something mm. that gives this feeling to other people? Um, because that's just better than just me experiencing that thing, as good as that is. Um, and so the best way I know to get to that feeling, whether I'm stuck on a desert island or not, is to be making things. Whether For me, that's mostly making stories one word at a time. Even if the stories suck, which some of them will, many of them will. Even if some days I hate what I've done before, which I often will. I'm going to keep doing that. On the desert island. Mm, cool. You'd be like Robinson Crusoe and build a treehouse <laughs> to live in on the desert island first. It sounds way too practical for me. I may be taking this too literal. It'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for you, Beck, you know how to do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I think I agree with that. I went to see an art exhibition yesterday and just looking at all these landscape paintings, I was like, wow, there's so much work in that I want to make something, you know? Like when you mm. actually see something that sparks your creativity, you just go, yes, I want to I want to jump in. I want to get into that that whirlpool and make something. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, like, that's part of these things, right? Like the things themselves that we talk about aren't just things to enjoy. Like they are that, and that's fine if that's what you do. But they're also tinder for the tinder's a tainted word now i hadn't realized that um <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's fuel for that thing right like i'm just always yep. no matter even though my medium for the most part is writing every time i watch a movie every time i read a book one of you guys recommends or listen to bjork singing her butt off on homogenic i'm <laughs> thinking how can i bring this in how can i get to where that person has got to even if the medium is different there's always things there for you to use if you look for them is that just you, me you can't no, no you can't not be at all. a um you can't be a creator without consuming other people's creations in a way like that's mm. the the fuel that feeds the fire that's the the way that you get better in a way it's like you take in the good stuff and the bad stuff and you learn from both of them and the stuff that you love in a way gets processed and, and comes out so that um hopefully you create things that other people will love too as well mm, yeah and mm. so you've got to ask yourself why why did i love that why how did I, they get to that reaction um what was the the tools they were using mm. um, this is something i've learned a lot from it would be wrong to have an episode without mentioning the patron state of this <laughs> podcast, Kathleen Jennings. Um, but it's something I am always learning from Kathleen, that she works across 
both visual arts and writing, as our faithful listeners will know. But she's always taking from one thing and thinking, what does what does this mean? Um, what does this lesson I've been learning about visual arts mean for mm. writing? What does this lesson about the structure of a short story mean for the way that I paint some people in the background and some people in the foreground? That's not just art and writing. That's everything, I think. Um, you just have mm. to know how to apply it to your medium. And I don't know about you guys, but so much of my early writing was mimicry. Like mm. you you read something and you're like, oh, and I, I suppose these days it would probably be called fan fiction, but, you know, you'd read something that really inspired you and you're like, I want to keep living in that world or I want to I try that too. And so, you know, you'd read some of the stuff that I wrote when I was a teenager and go, oh, well, that's a direct ripoff of XYZ. But it's only through that that you actually learn how to let your voice come out. Yep, yeah, that's, that's what, um, absolutely. The Chinese, the Chinese artists, isn't that what? How they learn? They learn by copying over and over again until they've kind of mastered the master, and then they move on. And mm. <laughs> it's a bit slavish, but I guess uh, some part of that principle applies. In a way, mm. Thanks, Guan. You're so deep. That's me. Man. Deep. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. We will have a very interesting desert island. It'd be very creative. And, well, I guess it wouldn't be a desert island if we were all there together, would it? It used to be a desert island with just us. <laughs> Might be a Lord of the Flies situation, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we probably shouldn't think about that too deeply. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'd be first to go. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just steal your glasses and it'll all be over. <laughs> We'll stop fantasizing about that. Before we head off, Karen, you wanted to plug Goulburn Comic Con. Yes, yes Goulburn Comic Con happens next Saturday, the 18th of March. I think the doors open at 11 o'clock and then shut at 5. And it's run by, I think, the Goulburn Library down there. And there's a whole bunch of workshops that um, you can do for cheap, including... One by Marcelo Baez, um, I forget what it's on, but he's always awesome, he's an artist, and I think he's doing something on character design, and I'm writing something on comic script writing at 11.15, and mm. there's all sorts of stuff happening, there'll be artist alley tables and cosplay and all sorts of fun things, so if you live in the Canberra, Goulburn area, um, yeah, highly recommend you come along. We look forward to hearing about it. Now, this episode marks a bit of a pause for us. We're not quite sure what turns the Hive Minded podcast is going to take next. So if there's anything you'd particularly like to hear us discuss, go to our Facebook page. So go to facebook.com slash hivemindedpodcast and yeah, just tell us what you like about the podcast or what you'd like to see or hear. Um, We may not be back in a fortnight, but we will be back soon. So it's goodbye from Guan. Goodbye. Goodbye from Karen. Bye-bye. And bye from me. See you later.